maybe the biggest thing is right you have an active choice in your mindset and you might have to remake that choice 50 times a day welcome to the grit factor reimagining grit as part of the whole person in a life that matters i'm your host shannon huffman polson this season is brought to you by tiller the first personal finance service to automate all your daily spending and account balances into spreadsheets. So you can track everything in one place with everything customizable, strict privacy, and no ads. Try Tiller free today at tillerhq.com. Also by The Grit Institute providing whole leader learning journeys in grit and resilience, purpose and storytelling. Invest in your people for long-term success. Find out more at thegritinstitute.com. I first came across Deidre Packnad and her work through a fellow Tuck grad at WorkBoard. When I started following her and what her company WorkBoard is doing, I was consistently impressed by WorkBoard's people-centered values and innovation, especially during the pandemic. As I started to know more of Deidre's story, I was even more blown away. Her difficult personal story leads directly into a life of purpose and ambition, which has led to her founding and leading three tech startups, acquiring companies and being acquired, and leading a high-growth business as an executive at IBM for several years. Deidre has over a dozen patents and has twice been inducted into the Smithsonian Institution for Innovation. Goldman Sachs named her one of the 100 most intriguing entrepreneurs of 2019. We'll talk about what drives her, the outcome mindset, and after a pandemic that brought with it personal tragedy for her as well, what her goals are around grit, which might surprise you. I learned a lot from our conversation, and I know you will too. Well, Deidre, welcome to The Grit Factor, and thank you so much for joining me today. Great to have you. You have just finished a huge event with a very big announcement at WorkBoard this week, and I wondered if you could share it with us. So we just had our big Accelerate conference, so we were lucky that the chief digital officer of T-Mobile, a team from Accenture, the CIO of Zendesk, the office of CEO team at VMware, Data robot strategy leader, a whole bunch of customers shared their story, their experience, our successes with WorkBoard. And then we announced um, yesterday morning a new product offering, Wobo Strategy. And we announced a new set of experiences designed to make collaboration more inclusive in recognition of how hard it is to team in the remote and distributed worlds that we now work in. I mean, your timing couldn't be better and better informed, right? <laughs> That's fantastic. Yeah, they we're quite excited about the, the announcement. The, the strategy product, Wobo strategy, is actually very much reflective of what our customers were experiencing over the last 12 months in particular, where they had to sort of think about the long range, but really have a lot of agility in the short range as things changed often. And their long range strategies obviously is sort of directional and it's based on a set of assumptions that we have about how the future will, will unfold and what they're experiencing and what you and I are experiencing is the assumptions get proven and disproven a lot faster right now and so it can't be so brittle it can't be like write it down and park it 
we actually have an adaptive active strategy. And so there was a lot of need that was that arose in 2021 that maybe you wouldn't have felt in 2020 or certainly the years prior to that. So it's uh, actually quite exciting to bring that from customer need and idea all the way into the marketplace. That's fantastic. For those who aren't familiar with what Workboard does and, and why OKRs matter as much as they do, can you talk a little bit about that? Yes. So Workboard is a software company that has what we call a strategy execution platform. And that is a set of capabilities for, as I just we just announced, aligning on the long range. So let's say the five-year strategy. Sure. And OKRs or objectives and key results are a technique for aligning on the near-term objectives and results. So what, is, what part of the strategy are we trying to execute in the next 90 days? And what are the outcomes that would tell us that we're nailing it? And we connect long-range strategy, short-range objectives to the monthly business reviews where we assess, are we, are we making the progress that we wanted against those objectives and on that strategy? And we flow it all the way into the weekly staff meetings and status meetings where in a perfect world, the strategy and our achievement of it is actually what we're talking about. Yeah, fantastic. So this new release that just uh, you've just announced, how does that uh, continue to enhance what you're, what you're already offering then? So we, what we had before the announcement was a module for objectives and key results, which allowed companies to be super focused on what do we need to do this year and this quarter? Sure. And that was automated into their monthly business reviews and their weekly status report. So it's a pretty sweet way of, in particular, the last couple of years, iterating every quarter on what was most important and then driving our attention and our focus on that. And we far and away have enjoy the largest customer share and the largest mind share around that. But what we just added was long range strategy. So in addition to being very focused and very clear on what we want to achieve in the next 90 days in this year, we now have that connected to a long range vision okay. where we want to be five years from now. And what are the strategy pillars and the bets and assumptions we're making way out into the future, not just in the next quarter and in this next year. And that long range, short range need to play better together when things are changing as often and actually as significantly as they are this year and obviously in the, in the prior couple of years as well. That's fantastic. I mean, that is really an incredible challenge for so many people is not being able to really even look at the horizon for that stability, right? Because that horizon seems to keep shifting and, and what they're dealing with in the day-to-day -day is continuing to evolve. So, wow, that's fantastic. A lot of companies like the senior leadership team has a strategy, but it's in a slide deck and parked somewhere. And it, it does, it's not actually guiding choices this month, this year, this year, right? It's just, okay, we said it. And then and it's actually an artifact, <laughs> actually, right? And, you know, maybe we wave it around at the town hall and everybody's like, yeah, sure. That's your strategy. Sure. I think the thing that is, that strikes us, right? Is that while every marketing department has 47 different pieces of software to make sure that they can be in incredibly data-driven and transparent. So everybody has the data they need to decision. And the support looks like that. And the engineering team looks like that. And the finance team looks like that. The strategy, how we define it, how we align on it, and how we drive progress on it, that is isn't automated at most companies. 
the strategy and the strategy operation is actually pretty darn important to the company. Maybe it is actually the heartbeat of the company. <laughs> Why don't we take a more systematic approach to that too, right? And that what we're seeing is there's a, there's a lot of tailwind uh, as companies try to still be strategic, yep. adapt their strategies and connect everybody to strategy achievement, which is phenomenally hard in our current dynamics, right? Our current working ways. This is not your first rodeo. You've seen, I know, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And in the Grip Factor, we talk to other leaders who have forged paths in different ways, but but you've really initiated things and, and started things from scratch. So I'd love to hear from you what you have found that has made you successful in an environment that is as challenging as that. I think we, we all sort of have a different thing that ignites or inspires us or gets our energy flowing. And in some senses, right, the let's start things is a, a maker or a creator instinct, right? Like, and it's a little bit of a problem solver instinct, right? Where you see something that could be different and instead of complaining about it or saying somebody should go invent something to do something about that, you say, huh, I like that problem. That's a good one. That's like a juicy problem. And I know I, I have enough passion to actually go try to solve that problem, like to really go deep into it and dig into it. And, and so in that sense, it's sort of falling in love with the problem and caring enough about it and being energized enough by the solving of it that you kind of just lean into it. And I I don't know what makes us lean one way or the other. I think other people are, I, are perhaps teachers and are their energy is more like, wow, I really like it if I can bring people along and up and forward, or if I can give them new skills, like we, we have different things that ignite our own kind of sparks. And, but for me, it's the, that, I think that can be solved. I get energy out of that. And then a lot of women uh, my age who are in significant leadership roles, we grew up with brothers and Mike has three of them. And I am pre-title nine. So not only I grew up with brothers, but if I wanted to play sports, it had to be on the boys team because there wasn't a girls team. And so, and I definitely want to play sports. <laughs> so I also grew up just getting a huge amount of joy and energy and kind of my game on, right? By being on a team and by competing to win and by playing hard and liking the people I lost with and really liking the people I won with. And, and so if you take that, I really, am, I'm into the problem and I really like to win. <laughs> I don't just want to win the game. I want to win the whole tourney. And then I want to win nationals. Like I want to win on a big canvas. Put those two things together. I think you kind of get a startup-ish kind of person. Yeah. And it does seem that there are a lot of women in leadership roles who have a very strong sports background in addition, perhaps to brothers. <laughs> that's right. I mean, being part of a team uh, that's practicing together. Right. And playing in actual competitions together, both of those things are super important. I couldn't say enough about how meaningful that is to your adult professional life. Interesting. No, that's great. And tell us about your sports. But when I was growing up, it was swimming and uh, softball and baseball were uh, were big, really, really big in my in my hometown in particular. Yeah, yeah. What was your event for swimming? I was a swimmer too. Breaststroke and back. Oh, breaststroke and back. Okay, I was back and free. That's great. Well, swimming teaches you to uh, to manage pain, doesn't it? <laughs> That's right. I, for the last 25 years, for sure, I've been um, quite into cycling. And my co-founder is 
hardcore. So I ride with him and that teaches you something about pain. And I'm so intensely competitive that I like try to, and I'm small. So I'm trying to be super efficient and I do not want to let go of his wheel. And um, it's a hundred percent pain, a hundred percent of the ride. Right. But it is so good for you, right? Because you sort of shift up out of it and you shift up out of it. Right. Um, and then you obviously get a lot stronger and then you're much more competitive, right? Because you, you built a whole lot of muscle from that pain. Sure. No, that's great. And and that's something you continue to draw on, I imagine, right? I mean, you have to continue to train yourself in those different modes to be able to execute on that at work as well, right? You bet. One of the big ones for me is there's a there's a certain ride in our neighborhood. We live in a hilly place, so all rides involving. So there's a hill that is, um, everybody locally knows their time up that hill, right? And then like times you ride up it and your time is really good and you feel great, right? Like you just, it all worked. You could spin and your legs were good and your lungs were good. And there's other times it's the exact same ride. And it's just, oh my God, it's so hard. Like, ugh, everything is off. And that actual, the same ride, different day, not same experience, that actually helps me a ton. So when I, I'm having a like bad legs, bad lungs day, like, hey, it's going to be fine. And like next, whatever, pick your next day, it, your legs will be strong and it'll be right. And the rhythm will feel good. And the whole ride will feel different, even though you're covering kind of the same ground. That variance, that that is super helpful for me when things are hard. I imagine there are so many parallels to your days at work. <laughs> Sometimes it's hard to see in the moment, right? But if you can relate it to cycling or, or whatever else your sport is, that's that's perfect. And that, that relates a lot to uh, this idea of growth mindset. I know you are big on mindset and you have your own interpretation and your own approach to that. Talk about a little bit about mindset. And I know you have approached that through the cycling piece, but how else do you think about mindset meaningfully? I think the, maybe the biggest thing is, right, you, you have an active choice in your mindset and you might have to remake that choice 50 times a day Yes. so that it's intentional as opposed to automatic or default or accidental, right? But we talk a lot about outcome mindset as a, a way of thinking first about the why yeah. of what you're going to do, right? Of an effort you might make or activity that you might do. Like, so what am I, what outcomes am I trying to create, right? What would be the fruition of any effort? And, and so it starts with a lot of clarity and thinking about, hmm, that my intent is actually X. And what I'm trying to do is create this outcome. Sure. And then the second aspect of that in, in a work setting, this is quite important, is thinking about not, okay, what, what can I get done? But what outcomes? And second question, well, what would great look like? Mm. And actually thinking about great outcomes, not priorities or activity, like, well, actually, what would awesome look like? And actually as a team and as a person start to ideate what great outcomes look like. Right. From there, think about, oh, okay, well then how will I organize for those great outcomes? Because I that's what I came for. I came to work to have a great impact that I knew and understood and that can be seen and understood by others. And that genuinely mattered in the context of the company and my, my time and my talent, right? And so outcome mindset is just being very intentional about okay, why would we do this? What outcome do we create? What's great look like? Organize for great. Sure. Organize for the minimum. It is the exact opposite of under promise and over deliver. It is the exact opposite of that mindset. 
How do you relate that mindset and, and actually how you described what the reason is that you show up and the reason that you, you come to work? How would you connect that to, to purpose? Sort of backs into it maybe a little bit. In some ways, it's I'll call that local purpose, right? You can say, okay, the mission of my organization is to, say I work in a healthcare insurer. The mission of my organization is to simplify availability of care when people need it and enrich their lives as a function of it, per se. My work, I, if I work in the IT org, I'm a part of an operations function and maybe I'm writing code for internal users. How do I map that to that mission? It's pretty abstract from the chair I'm sitting in. And it requires a giant leap of imagination to make that statement for the company's purpose into my purpose. And I think sometimes companies get that a bit wrong. They think that if they make the big grand one-liner, everybody will be able to say, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That really related to my morning. No, it didn't really relate to anybody's morning leadership team and the people who came up with it. When I think about like at my team's level, when I'm with seven or eight people, not me, CEO, me in different contexts, at the team level, when we talk about, well, okay, like what impact do we want to create and how would we know and what would be awesome? That is our purpose. That is the purpose of the work we're going to do in this company. And it's a local version of our purpose in relationship to the company's purpose. And I think that's so much more visceral and tangible. And the thing that is that I love most about it is the team is authoring that locally. And when they author it, they own it, they feel it, they have a different relationship to it than they do when they read the slogan in the elevator. And if you were to back up even further to the individual contributor or the individuals on that seven person team, how do you relate that individual purpose to that team purpose to that company purpose? I think that's tough. And I think in particular, I think it's tough because we we maybe don't help managers, in particular ones, the first-time managers, managers who are managers of individual contributors only, almost by definition are the least enabled managers in the organization. Like when somebody is a once they're a director, which means they manage managers. And or in a big company, they're above their senior director level or rising VP level. They get plenty of coaching and manage, leader development and manager training programs, like pipelining them to bigger jobs. But when you think about the individual contributor, that's not who they work for. They work for the first time manager, right? And that first time manager is probably not getting a lot of, hey, here's what great looks like for a frontline manager. In fact, we're relying on them to think oh yeah, what I loved was this. So therefore everyone on my team must love it. Not true, right? And so what one of my favorite things about things like OKRs, right? Is that's a team sport. It's the team having that conversation, the team agreeing on what it collectively wants to do and the impact it wants to have and what value it's creating. I actually think that's enough of a slipstream, if you will, to bring every member of that team forward. Bring back to what we just announced. We announced a, what we're calling collaboration canvases, and they're a method of the whiteboard style method for creating or having a conversation with your team about objectives and key results. And one of the things we think is super important now, different than the way we might have had a team conversation in the past, now a great team conversation when we're all on Zoom 
we're having a team conversation about, okay, this is where the company's going, what, what impact should we make? How can we contribute? What, what are our outcomes? That used to be that it was, somebody would share a screen, they'd start typing in a Google doc maybe, and the person typing was also editorializing. So if somebody threw something out there, the person with the keyboard can decide whether that goes on the page or not. Like, I don't like that idea, I'm not typing it, right? And then the, the loud talkers do the talking and the quiet team members, the brand new ones who just joined, the ones who didn't know the manager before the pandemic started, those people don't say anything at all. And so in a team of seven people or 10 people, you've got three people doing all the talking, one person actually controlling the pen or the keyboard, and seven people abdicating or apathetic. And so this collaboration canvases we just introduced are whiteboard and the coaching of a great conversation now, a team conversation that is a brainstorm on what we might achieve together. That conversation starts with silence now where people's ideas go on that whiteboard unfettered. They go up, take 15 and put your ideas out there. And then when all the ideas are out there from every person, quiet or loud, unfiltered, unedited by the person with the keyboard, because we all use the keyboard, then we have a real dialogue about, oh, interesting, I hadn't thought about that. Tell me more. And you find the common patterns but you find the common patterns of everyone's thinking, not just assume they're there when the three loud talkers are doing all the talking. And that shift in what I think of as a more inclusive paradigm for team conversations about what are we gonna try and accomplish together means that we can include the loud and the quiet, the long tenured and the brand new, the entitled and the not sure they're entitled people, all of them, we can include all of their ideas in the discussion and the conclusion we have as a team on what we're gonna achieve together. And I think that's this is a really important moment in time to shift up how we have those kinds of team conversations. That's amazing. It, it makes me remember some research that we had come across when we were doing focus groups for a nonprofit that I've been a part of for the last six years, that when you're doing those focus groups, you have to start with letting people write things down first. And otherwise, ideas just simply don't come up, right? Because they're influenced by what someone else says that might be more outspoken or, wow, that's very powerful. I hope that you're, you'll change the entire culture of how we all do this. So in previous interviews, you've shared a little bit about your personal story and how it is that that is a significant part of, of uh, shaping your life and how it is that your motivations and your direction have uh, continued to evolve. And story is very much the foundation of grit in, in all of the folks that are part of the grit factor. But I'd love you to share a little bit about how your personal stories led you to where you are today. My When I was an infant, when I was nine days old, my father was in the Air Force and my mom and dad were both very young as people my parents' generations were when they had children. But my father was killed in when I was nine days old and my mom obviously was widowed at what could only be described as a, as a fairly tragic moment in her life and, and in mine. And I was their first uh, and only, obviously, child. But she was very, very young and troublesome, right? It was hard on her and it took a, quite a bit of time for her to find her footing. And, and then she remarried a fabulous man who I consider my dad 
they had more kids uh, together and he, I have step siblings as well. So I ended up in a, in a family of five, although I started in a, a very disrupted family of, of one kid to begin with. Because he was in the Air Force and uh, and was uh, killed at work uh, or in action, I was entitled to a set of benefits for for children in that situation. And and what those benefits included my ability to go to university in if I went to state university in California, the the tuition would be waived, and there was a one hundred eighty eight dollars of Social Security a month, uh, which. I, I used to, to buy a 12 pack of tortillas and a brick of cheese that I could make last a very long time and pay my, my housing. And so, but for that, right, I was, I was not, my family wasn't in a situation where they, they were going to be able to pay for my going to college. And in those days, student loans weren't uh, quite as obvious or as available. And I wasn't from a family where, where people had gone to college. I was, I was from a family where people had babies at 19 and were widows. So the, the tool set was limited. And so I was aware of a couple of things. One is I was, my, my parents uh, made clear to me that your dad would have wanted you to go to college. He dreamed that for you. He hoped that for you. Nothing like having a dead person watching over you. <laughs> that you don't want to disappoint them because they have these expectations. So really early on your head sort of gets wrapped around like, <laughs> oh man, I, I did that wrong. And uh, I'm sure he can see me and he's disappointed. And of course, the, just this notion that I was going to, I was going to go to college. And that was not a notion that every, that my four siblings, that wasn't, they didn't have that expectation, which is perhaps a disservice to them but it was very disproportionately weighed on me. And I think, okay, from the town I was from, which was not a large town, nor a rich town, there was like, okay, few things you could do in your group. You could be a doctor, you could be a lawyer, you could be a nurse or a teacher. I'm like, okay, I'm not a nurse and I'm not a teacher. I'm probably not a doctor. Okay, I'm gonna be a lawyer. And I just wrote it super hard on like, you're gonna be a lawyer and then did the math on pay for law school after undergrad I'm gonna which is like you know three years on top of the four years how do I get there like okay I'm gonna graduate from college two years early so I can and my benefits expired at 22 and when I was 22 years old it's like I gotta get all the way through law school before I'm 22 and or I don't have a way to go and and I was very clear that I I wanted to be economically independent and in control of my adulthood that's an early lesson learned from having a widowed mom. And so I, I did graduate too early, years early. And I did try to jam the whole thing in and try and graduate from law school before I was 22. <laughs> I decided I don't want to be a lawyer, but my, the intensity of like, just figure out a way to live your highest expectations, whether the odds are set up for you or not, was, um, was baked in pretty, pretty early. That's a, it's a pretty intense story. Because I, I didn't know him, obviously, right? I, when I think about that story, I'm, I'm more, I think much, much more about like that must have been like for my mom and how it's really, actually, it's fairly hard to imagine, although there are many spouses in the broader military family who, who also know what that is like. But I, I, my heart really hurts for her more than me there. I think it ended up translating into a level of scrappy and personal motivation that it served me well 
served me well in my, in my life. Those those expectations of ghosts are they're a big propellant. They are. <laughs> yes. Well, I have to think he'd be and is very proud of everything that you've done and continue to do. So whether it's called uh, being scrappy or whether it's called grit and resilience, however it is that you come at that, actually, how would you come at that? Maybe it is being scrappy. And, and how would you pull apart different aspects of that? Because I know you're very good at pulling things apart and finding the components and then compiling them again. How do you think about grit and resilience and scrappiness uh, relative to success? So I think grit's an awesome word. And I would say that my, I don't have a shortage of it. I probably have excess. And so I, where I am in my life right now is actually very focused on how do I, as a person, right? And, and as a leader, right? How do I make sure that my, the quantity of grit I have is actually not obscuring the quantity of heart I have. And the, and I say that because my mother remarried, had two more children, both of them have died. And my sister passed away about 18 months ago little less than 18 months ago during COVID and um, of cancer. And my brother was killed in a tragic motorcycle accident. And um, and both times I was CEO of a company in the middle of, one of them was in the middle of the dot-com crash and the other one obviously is in the middle of, of crazy COVID, whatever. And so difficult times to be a leader. And then I had to layer on just like real grief on top of that. And then still somehow, <laughs> get up in the morning and go do my job and and not because this will go back to the ghost not disappoint my investors not let my team down not abandon them at points where clearly there was a lot of uncertainty and doubt and scary things for them as well and my job as a leader was to pull forward and so I have an extraordinary amount of uh, I don't know tenacity whatever you want to call it and grit is is a great word but what I now what I'm worried about is how do I, I'm so comfortable with that layer on, how do I make sure that that layer, which is not the only layer, but it's needed to be a pretty big layer for me in the last year and year and a half in particular, how do I make sure that layer actually has, is, is porous, <laughs> that kind of heart and soul come through as well. And prettiness aside, right. That's super hard in sustained kind of COVID now recession threat and war, right? Th those things are um, layers on top of that, which could mean you could find yourself like too gritty all the time and insensitive to others who are still figuring out how to be resilient in the face of hardship. And so I'm working on draining a little out the side. <laughs> how do I have less day to day? And yeah, I do think it's a little bit like, practicing and, and building up muscle to just to and I would say that it's not to necessarily to get up and do another day it's like it's a little bit the muscle to see through the things that make you uncomfortable and find again the thing forward in front of you that you believe in that is the spark that ignited you or that you the mission you still care about it's like not to let the present fog and pain obscure that thing or that space or that place or the, the joy that's sitting out there and be able to work through it anyway and be undefeated by undefeated by the whatever the current issues are. And there will forever be current issues that are. I mean, that's an incredibly difficult last few years. My gosh. Yes, indeed. <laughs> yeah. But I love how you 
articulate that being and knowing that you have this incredible both reservoir and capacity for grit and not letting that overcome the heart piece because that is the balance and that's a hard thing when you can come by that naturally you can employ it it leads to success and yet right the the more holistic definition of success requires more than that yeah yeah that's right it's if you will grit or just resilience to move forward you have to find the new balance right like the more of that you have it's sort of you've got to rebalance the whole thing you're just sort of tilting this way a little bit and that's the work i need to do this year right is to balance that out right so my my survivorship uh is not over fierce right we'll see how that goes do you have some okrs around that <laughs> You must, you must. <laughs> yeah, yeah, certain, I find it super helpful for myself, right? If I like break that down into, okay, what would that look like? That would look like actually finding a micro victory every day and celebrating that. That would look like making sure that you set up this situations where you have, you know, whatever, a laugh a week, right? As examples, I would for sure make sure I have as much yoga as I have any other kind of exercise. And I love you results for that. It just helps me remind myself of my own intentions, right? And that's as balanced as I could possibly get. It's just keep coming back to, oh yeah, I intend this. I intend this, right? I, I think we all have to do whatever our intentions are. Absolutely. No, that's excellent. So one of the things, and this goes a bit to the heart piece that you've mentioned, I think as well, although this is both internal and I know external here, but one of the things that I, I first was introduced to WorkBoard uh, about was because of your incredible care that you took of your company and of the people in your company during the pandemic. And the research seems pretty clear that right now people are leaving in part because they're dissatisfied with the care that is being taken of them, but you seem to have cracked that code. And I'm, I'm guessing that you probably cracked it earlier even than WorkBoard. So what is, what's your outlook or your approach that makes you successful with that? I don't know if I've cracked any code, but I can say, share what I've tried and what I experienced positively. But in that first year, the amount of anxiety and uncertainty that people are facing was really huge. And for a lot of them, younger people who lived alone, like isolated and stranded or lived with the housemates or stuck in their room all day long. And for people whose parents they used to be able to drive across town and take care of the parent. The parent really needed that help. Now they can't. There's just so much in our family life and in our sort of existence as humans that was quite uncertain and hard, right? And so that first year, we um, had a lot of programs, big, 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 big safety net to make sure people had food if they got something because you couldn't really go to the store because isolation was real then. Um, like we send flowers to everybody's house every week, right? Just like bringing a little bit of sunshine in, a little bit of happiness in, a little bit of connection in. And that set of things, graduation for everybody's kids because nobody could go to a graduation. We talked about it as a village, right? Like this whole village is going to be fine. We're all going to be fine. That was actually fabulous for me too. I also needed to be fine that year, right? So it was important for I think all of us it, when I think about what that what connection and being involved with people and what that really looks like we in many ways work board has the same dynamics as the inclusion I just talked about right which is the tool set we had 
you know, collaborate and come together as a team. The tool set actually didn't keep up with the dynamics of online. Right. We had Google Docs or Word Docs or whatever, but that like that wasn't quite. And then for many of us, we could not get together or it didn't make sense to get together or whatever. And so I think the tool set made it hard for everybody. And then I think the other dynamic, because I don't want to throw stones at glass house. I think the other dynamic is the sequential or sequential waves of Delta followed by Omicron, followed by whatever the heck is going on this year, which is even weirder than we could have possibly imagined. Oh, but the layers of that, I think, have a giant psychic effect, psychic drag on people. And we all will work with that in, in different ways. And for a whole bunch of people, if part of that way is, I just need to get off the ride for a little while. Yeah. I think we should look at that and say, hope, hope you're well. We should look at that and say, oh, gosh, this is a sign of yet another crisis. We should actually say, no, this is a sign of the one we've been in for the last two years. It's the sign, right? That fatigue, uh, I, I think we honor it instead of actually get thrown by it. And I think we, we acknowledge that if you joined a company by interviewing on Zoom right, and the tools didn't serve as well for the last year, like, and real meaningful collaboration and human connection, like, like moments of joy and laughter, those got fewer and fewer and fewer the number of Zoom calls you were on. And in 2021, none of us really wanted to do Zoom happy hours anymore. Like, please, no, don't make me. That worked for the first year. That's not going to work for the second year. That's right. There's like a trust deficit, a trust debt that is, and maybe a better word, it's, it's a joy debt. And I look at that and think, okay, for us, it's okay. How are we going to get really intentional about paying down that joy debt by putting a lot of joy in the system, bring people together. How can we bring them together? What ways can we do that? What are the situations we can do that? Where we reconnect with each other as full human beings with all the anecdotal little side moments and we pay some joy into the system so we can tap it while we go back to our houses and work for a couple of months and we come back together again. And I, I think that, I don't know if it's a great resignation or it's a great shifting. I think I look at that as slightly less I don't know, you must be doing something wrong if this is happening to you. And I look at it a little bit more and saying, well, to say people's lives have not dramatically changed in the last two years is is a huge understatement. And that we all have the same recipe for how we work with what these changes are also just seems unfair. And so work with the fatigue, like pay down the joy debt. And, and, and allow people to say, I got to, I got to step off the ride. Now, what we're doing in that is if you need six weeks, please take them and be well. And we'll even proactively say, you know what? I think this would be a great time for a sabbatical. Yeah. And we'll suggest that people go do that. Right. And I, which is just acknowledging that it's been a bit draining. Sure. Without the refill that we normally get from connecting with each other, without the refills. Right. What excellent paradigms to, to consider, both in, in proactively looking for that opportunity to, to serve and, and to be with your people and to honor the challenges and solutions that can help to move in that direction. That, that's wonderful. That's wonderful. And, and requires a connection I think a lot of people may not have, but could have, right? I mean, it's a, a question of, 
a decision. Yeah. I think we all miss it, right? Like the winning together, just like, even if just like having a great meeting at the end of the meeting, you would think, oh, that was so good. And you would like experience it together. Here, you just click that red button and the meeting ends and you go on to the next transaction. And I think that whether we acknowledge it or, or we don't, I think, I think for people who've been, you know, kind of Monday through Friday in this digital world, I, I think, I think we all, we all have a bit of a, a hole there that we can feel. And even the most serious of leaders, they still enjoyed sitting down in their office and having an off the cuff conversation with right. just a colleague, right. And, and being seen as a person, not as a title, right. Yes. No, absolutely. Have you ever, have you come across the movie that is, uh, was released just last year called Mission Joy? It's no. uh, Archbishop Desmond Tutu and the Dalai Lama. And uh, it's, it's well worth uh, tracking down. It's available through a lot of different outlets right now, but um, it's, it's really quite wonderful. I'm writing that one down. It is, of course, another thing to watch on a screen. But um, but if you do it together <laughs> with friends, it can be actually. A yeah, yeah. Yeah. And they, I remember they were both in Seattle, actually, on one of their their I think it was a Seeds of Compassion tour or something. And I was able to see them in person in the University of Washington, that big auditorium or arena. And and those two old men, I mean, they're so wise, right? And they've been through unbelievable hardship and they just giggle like little boys. I mean, it's it's just amazing. It's just wonderful. Well, thank you for all of this. This is incredible. I, you know, I just got off of a, a program earlier this morning with a group of transitioning senior and elite military and elite athletes. And one of the things that is challenging, and I experienced this myself as I was leaving the military, even through the MBA and, and going into the corporate space, but I think each of them are wrestling with as well, is how it is you go from this intense sense of purpose and fulfillment, often connected to something that has been given to you, right? An external focus or mission, and then find a way to contribute in the world in a meaningful way. Find that new purpose. I bring that up because I feel like there's a connection to that a little bit in, for all of us really, right? With going through this, this two years of a, a huge shift, like this cataclysmic shift. And now truly the, the geopolitics are shifting, right? Everything is shifting beneath everybody's feet. And so when people are struggling with that sense of purpose, what, where would you start? What would you recommend to them? That's a good question um, and a hard one. I think I, I would have to think about it like incrementally. Sure. Allow time. But so between whatever, from May to August, I'm going to give myself this space, this time, right? To explore this, experiment with that and let this energy dissipate. Sure. And then from August, I will reset. Okay. Now, what do I want to explore did, did I learn anything from the things I experimented with or I explored on in the prior period? And, and then be in, intentional, I'm sorry, I overuse that word, but be specific a bit about not narrowing too soon or feeling like I need to have it figured out, but in fact, breaking it down into, okay, what do I want to explore and deepen? And what do I want to test or try on? Right between this time and this time and give myself a boundary in a sense so that I could enjoy the freedom of exploring without the pressure of why well, don't I have it figured out yet. 
and then use that as input to the next tranche of time. And instead of having to try to find the forever answer, to find the next in this time period, what experiences do I want to have? What experiments do I want to run? What things do I want to explore? For me, it would be less paralyzing, to be honest, and probably more liberating than the I have to solve. And particularly if I had been, I'd spent a lifetime trying to solve for other things, I, I would likely feel a, a bit of a loss. Like, okay, I don't, I don't know how to solve for this. Like finding the purpose for the rest of my life that I will be paralyzed in that. Right. Anyway, so I, incremental with time blocks and the freedom to be in, in those blocks fully without the, the overhang of, you know, I don't have it figured out yet. Yeah. I like that a lot. I think actually most of us could benefit from that at, at various points of indecision or, or frustration or, or people just starting out as well. Right. Yeah. yeah be kinder to yourself. Right. It, it is okay to not have it figured out. Yes. Surprise. Yeah, surprise. Well, for somebody who is as uh, scrappy, as uh, gritty as you are, I love that we have talked about heart and we've talked about kindness and we've talked about honoring both yourself and others in the space where we all are right now. And uh, in the meantime, incredible opportunities with what's going on at WorkForward. So thank you so much and all the very, very best. Thank you. What a joy to talk to you. Thank you so much. Thank you, Deidre. It always is. Take care. Thanks for listening to The Grit Factor. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review on your favorite podcast app and share it with a friend. Also, pick up your own copy of The Grit Factor for more candid stories and lessons from leaders in the vanguards of their fields. And invest in yourself and in your team with learning journeys in grit, leadership, purpose, and storytelling at thegritinstitute.com. Thanks for listening. I hope you'll join me for the next episode of The Grit Factor.